This week on Life and Faith. What we do with our bodies is sometimes trivial and fairly unimportant. But when we get into the zone of relating to other people and touching other people, it's always important. Touch is never trivial. And sex is really never trivial. Christianity is a fundamentally paradoxical beauty. The fact that I was hanging around ashrams doing goat bleating was indicating that something was missing. How do performing artists see the world? Because I'm nothing like a performing artist. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. And you might have noticed that the issue of consent has dominated the news for the first half of this year. And just a content warning, we will be talking about sexual assault and rape in this episode. So please keep that in mind for yourself and for others who may be listening in. If you live in Australia, you're probably familiar with names like Brittany Higgins, Chanel Contos, Grace Tame. These young women have put the issue of consent and sexual assault front and centre of the national agenda. They sure have, and it seems like a sort of strange confluence of events, Justine. I mean, in January, we had Grace Tame was named Australian of the Year for her advocacy for survivors of sexual assault. And it seems that that image of her standing next to Prime Minister Scott Morrison gave Brittany Higgins the courage to go public in February about her alleged rape by a colleague in a ministerial office at Parliament House. And all of this sparked a huge kind of political crisis, raising concerns. People have talked about a toxic work environment at Parliament House, particularly for young female staffers. Yes, and... This really struck me because I sort of half forgot about this, but the same week that the Brittany Higgins story broke, you had 23-year-old Chanel Contos, a former private school girl. She launched a petition on Instagram calling for better sex education in schools and from an earlier age as well. And she did this because she'd earlier put out this question asking whether her followers had ever experienced sexual assault from someone at an all-boys school. And these testimonies, you know, it's like now 5,000 and counting, they flooded in. And some from girls from as young as 13. Uh, and it's really held up a mirror to the ways that women, and especially young women, get treated. And it makes for really horrifying reading, very confronting stuff. So that's the backdrop to today's Life and Faith. In this episode, we want to approach the topic of consent from a different angle, one that reframes the whole issue around human dignity, because that's really what's at stake here. So the crisis over consent or sexual assault or domestic violence all seem symptomatic of a deeper problem, the failure to treat women with dignity. It's really the failure to treat them as fully human. Yeah, I think a concern for human dignity is often assumed in the conversations we wind up having about consent. I mean, they're the reason we promote consensual relationships and encourage good consent education in the first place. But I do think that human dignity can often be like the elephant in the room in some ways in these conversations. We're always talking around it, but not naming it outright. Mm, or not knowing what, really what to say about it. So, Justin, you wrote a, a short column on the proposed I Consent app that dealt with this. I thought this was quite 
interesting and worth bringing up. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so the proposed iConsent app, it was never given a name, but let's call it that. So New South Wales Police Commissioner Mick Fuller was saying, what do we do about the problem with consent? Maybe we can do what the Danes have done, uh, have some sort of app where you would have to register your consent to sex on your phone before any sexual encounter. And to be fair to him, he wasn't saying this is the solution. He was just saying this is in play in the in the world at the I, moment. I think he ended up saying this wasn't his best idea. <laughs> well, he was certainly right there. He was having a go. Yeah. Um, I thought more about this and I was like, do you know what? The iConsent app compared sex to online banking because it seemed to picture sex in these really transactional terms with yeah. obligations binding on everyone involved. And I, don't, I think that's true. Like sex can be like that, but it's so thinned out. It's, it's supposed to be much more than that. And it even struck me that the way that the app was inviting people to engage with it was almost like um, it was asking you to sign a user agreement. So if you think about any kind of online uh, social media platform that you want to use, it'll ask you to sign a user agreement. And let's be honest, you sign those agreements, you don't even think about them. Um, You don't even read them properly. Once you've done it, you're moving on. So if the app was projecting a really thinned out picture of sex, it had a really thinned out picture of the human uh, to go along with it. it. It sort of showed humans as, as users just there to do something and then to, to get on with their lives. Now, plenty of people criticised that app. Chanel Contos herself dismissed it immediately. Uh, then what, what's different, Justine, about what you're saying here? Yeah, well, people were criticising its impracticality and the fact that it does nothing to actually prevent rape. Um, and I think people were implicitly criticising the urge to outsource this problem to a technical solution. And I would argue that they're reacting to the thinned out picture of the human that the app was operating with. Mm. So the question seems to revolve around human dignity. And that's the kind of lens we want to bring to this episode. So we've gathered a few voices to bring out the complexities of the issue of consent, and it's a very complex issue. We want to look at how a robust vision of the human person might support good relationships between men and women. Now, we mentioned Chanel Contos earlier. Here she is talking about why she petitioned for better sex ed. About a year ago now, I was with four friends. We grew up in the same sort of social circle but went to different schools and we started talking about our uh, experiences with rape and consent and it basically became very apparent to me that all of us had tens or hundreds of stories of friends or like boys and girls and things happening and it just sickened me and it was just so frustrating sitting there thinking does the boy even know he did this and I decided that the best way to approach it is to attack the education system because ultimately it's the education system that failed us on this. So ultimately, the education system failed us. That seems to be a common assumption in discussions on this topic. Emma Wood is a moral philosopher who wrote about consent for ABC Religion and Ethics, and we'll hear from her a bit today. I asked her whether education is the key to addressing this problem. This is a tricky question because I certainly think that a dominant assumption on the part of educators, on the part of organisations who do this work, who speak to young people about consent, I think it's certainly a dominant assumption that the main problem is a lack of information. But it seems to me that there is a lot that this explanation is missing When you hear brutal stories about uh, women uh, being unconscious, being raped, when you hear stories about boys persistently pressuring girlfriends into sex, even though they have said no, 
When you hear of intellectually capable and intelligent boys not seeming to be able to receive this message, it really seems to me that the problem that we've got is one that more concerns uh, character and a need to cultivate virtue rather than a lack of information. The tricky thing about this, of course, is that categories like character and virtue are not concepts that our liberal uh, paradigm deals with very easily when we come to cultivating young people. But yes, this seems like the main problem to me. There's a lack of an inculcation of values and beliefs that help boys to be self-controlled or that help boys to see the value of sex and the value of another person. John Stackhouse is a Canadian theologian and a friend of ours at CPX, and we got him on the line to talk about this. Like Emma Wood, he believes we need a more substantial foundation on which to have these conversations. And analogies about forcing people to have cups of tea or milkshakes is just not going to cut it. What we need is a good, strong, compelling story to drive out the bad, ugly story that is given to us at its mildest form in popular media and its worst form in pornography. We need to be telling young people a good story about the goodness of their bodies, about the goodness of relationship, the goodness of friendship, uh, the goodness of sex, uh, the goodness of romance, the goodness of marriage. We need to be telling these stories well, while of course taking into account that different people in Australia, as in Canada, will have somewhat different views about those things. And so we, we appreciate cultural and familial and individual differences. But still, we have a pretty broad cultural consensus about these things, much broader than I think we sometimes think. And we can teach those things in our schools about respect, about affection, about honesty, about the way that sex really connects us with each other, that it isn't a trivial thing, that it is an important step. Most Australians, I dare say, like most Canadians, agree on those things. And we need to start this, Simon, a lot earlier. I mean, porn is getting to these kids much earlier. TikTok's getting to them much earlier. So this really does need to start at, uh, you know, grades two, three, four, uh, much earlier than most parents probably want. But if you don't teach them a good story, somebody else is very happy to teach them a bad one. If you remember, Chanel Contos originally asked whether people had been assaulted by someone who went to an all-boys school. So here's Tim Bowden. He's principal at Trinity Grammar School in Sydney, and he's talking about his reaction to the stories that she collected. I was sickened and I was horrified. I was shocked, I think, not by the nature of the revelations, uh, because working in education, you're aware that there are terrible things that young people can do to one another. But what I was entirely thrown by was the sheer scale of the incident. I made it a point to read every one of the 70 pages in the first Google Doc that was released. Uh, and then when the website went live, I kept up to about 2,200 stories. Yeah. Uh, and I thought it was important for me as an educator of boys to read the stories because each one of those stories, um, be it a paragraph long, spoke about the reality of a human life and potentially a human life that boys who come through my care may have played a role in. And so I, I read them all and I was simultaneously sickened and couldn't look away. It was a profoundly disturbing time for me. 
I reflected on it with my staff and uh, and tried to make sense of how I was responding and thinking about it, being conscious that in encountering these stories, there would be a profound personal effect on many of them, that it was a triggering experience for them to read about this, particularly for our female staff. Some did not read by choice and others who did read were profoundly disturbed at the thought that the the boys in, in our school could be boys who are doing these kinds of things to their peers. And that was a, a really difficult thing for them to work through. Following that was uh, communication to our boys uh, and communication to our families. There are some boys who, you know, I don't doubt this was very close to the bone for them. There were other boys who were oblivious and it's, it's not their story. But Tim Bowden also pushed back on the idea that this was just an issue for schools to manage. And he was really straight with parents about that in a letter that he wrote to them about the issue. This is one of the things I think we've been really well served by the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses into Sexual Abuse, which unfolded uh, over the last few years. What it drew out for us very clearly was that the predatory behaviour, which in that case was primarily, although not exclusively, adult on child predatory behaviour, um, is enabled. That is, it takes place in circumstances and um, situations and contexts in which people enable it to take place. Um, it's not just the case of here is a wicked person doing a wicked thing. There are factors around that create a context where that can happen. And one of the things that stands out and is just one of the most undeniable things about the testimonies that uh, Ms Contos has assembled is how frequently it involved a party that involved alcohol and secluded spaces and apparently little or no adult supervision. And those things are enablers of predatory behaviour. And so the point that I wanted to make to my families is this is not just a case of you know teaching young people what respect or what consent looks like, as important as that is. It's also got to do with what you are doing as parents, which can enable assault to take place. And so in some ways it was confrontational for my community to be told that they are enablers of sexual assault. But I think if a parent throws a party that provides alcohol, provides darkness and doesn't provide supervision, then they are enabling sexual assault. And that's something that they have to take responsibility for. My experience in talking to my peers who, who lead schools, particularly the leaders of girls' schools, this really was very much on their horizon already. Uh, I think there's an issue there that needs to be considered by people like myself who lead in single-sex environments, and that is what ways, if in any, does this contribute to the issue and what can be done to mitigate against it. For all of us, this is something that we are profoundly disturbed about and committed to making better, but we are also equally committed to the fact this is not just a school problem. It's all too easy to kind of go, well, there's a problem, schools will fix it. Hmm. Whereas what we see and what we've seen in the corridors of Parliament House and what we've seen in the March for Justice, the reality is this is a whole of society thing. And the answer is not going to be solved through a school curriculum answer. Uh, The answer is going to be solved for us all as a society saying, this happens, this is not good enough, and we must stop it. What needs to change? And are you kind of thoroughly depressed by this or can you see hope about real change you know the, a different view of the other person such that you, you kind of wouldn't treat them like this I think that we now have an awareness of the scope and the size of the issue and I think that in the March for Justice and in the public outcry surrounding uh, Miss Higgins experience in Parliament House and these testimonies brought by Ms Contos and the other ways in which this kind of behavior is being called out which in some ways I guess is following on from the Me Too movement from a few years ago, I think that there is increasingly a mood that this is not good enough. And that's progress. 
Do I think we've arrived at a point where that's no longer an issue, where men are no longer a threat to women, where people can walk confidently down a dark street without fear of what might happen to them? No, but I think we're making progress. It's a difficult thing for me as a man contemplating these things because I feel that instinct of going, this is terrible, I would not do this. But I'm struck by the observation that was made that pretty much every woman knows a woman who's been sexually assaulted uh, and pretty much every man would say he doesn't know anyone who's an assaulter. Um, There's a blind spot there for someone and I suspect that the blind spot has been for men rather than for women. We'll hear more from Tim Bowden later. But right now, let's go to my chat with Linda Dunstan. She's Family and Domestic Violence Advisor for Anglicare. Maybe she's not the first person you would think to interview about consent, but there is an explicit link between consent and domestic violence. I think lack of consent for sexual encounters is sexual assault or sexual abuse. And the link between that and domestic violence is that they are both primarily forms of violence against women. So we know that from the statistics that while men can also experience sexual assault and domestic violence, overwhelmingly the majority of victims are women. And how many, um, can you give us those statistics, you know, how many women are we talking about experiencing DV? So women experiencing domestic violence is about one in four women in their lifetime compared to about one in 13 men. Uh, For sexual violence, one in five women over the age of 15 experience sexual violence compared to about one in 20 men. Uh, One in two women experience sexual harassment. One in six women over 15 experience physical or sexual abuse from a current or former partner. And in Australia, sadly still, it's about one woman every seven to nine days is killed by a current or former intimate partner. It is a shocking statistic. Yeah, it yeah. is a shocking statistic. So we are talking about an issue that that is a very gendered issue. And so that's why it is often referred to as violence against women. And so that, I think, is where the intersection lies between issues around consent and sexual assault and issues around domestic violence. I think, too, the issue of consent is an issue that is part of marriage and cohabiting relationships as well. You know, it's only been since the 80s and 90s in Australia that we've actually recognised that legally with um, legislation about rape in marriage. Uh, And I think that's part of a whole cultural shift to understand that simply agreeing to live together with someone or marry someone does not equal consent to any and every sexual encounter. Mm. So saying I do doesn't mean yes every time you ask me. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. And we know that sexual assault in relationships that are dominated by coercive control, so domestic violence type relationships, that sexual assault is a really significant issue in those relationships as well and that it's a high risk indicator for future lethality. So it's a pretty serious part of those relationships where domestic violence is going on. Much of Linda's work involves getting communities to reckon with factors that drive violence against women. There's a a broad range of behaviours and attitudes that are the drivers of violence against women. And I think it's important to remember that when we talk about some of those kind of broad social drivers, we're not excusing individual behaviour, but I think it's important that we do have some awareness of what that broader social context is. So research really strongly indicates that violence against women occurs in the context of gender inequality. Um, So that's the broad social context. It includes things like, you know, the gender pay gap, lower levels of female representation um, in senior government or boards, 
Parliament, discrepancy in number of hours of unpaid domestic care work done by women and men, those sort of broad gender inequality issues, but then also particular attitudes and beliefs. So the three that I think are really worth paying attention to, male privilege and entitlement, and that includes men's control over women's decision-making, rigid gender stereotype beliefs about what men and women can do or how they should behave, and disrespect for women. And that often, when it's associated with male bonding, that emphasises aggression and objectification of women. So I kind of call that the toxic trio of beliefs and attitudes. Linda then went on to mention another toxic belief, that women are somehow responsible for male behaviour, meaning what she did, what she wore, and so on, drove him to do what he did. This belief is just as relevant to consent as it is to DV. I mean, I just think historically, you know, a strong view that women as the sexual temptress or, you know, women who have to manage men's sexuality rather than we're each responsible for our own behaviour and choices. I think that's the thing that really needs to be emphasised in consent, isn't it, is that everyone is responsible for and can make decisions about how they express themselves, physically, sexually, whatever it is, and should do that in cooperation and with the consent of anyone that they're engaging with. You're listening to Life and Faith from CPX and we're talking about consent and a full picture of human dignity. Just as domestic violence takes place in a context of gender inequality, we're also caught up in cultural currents that shape how we understand sex. So let's go back to my chat with Emma Wood. In an article for ABC's Religion and Ethics, Emma drew a distinction between what she called a recreational view of sex and a significance view of sex. I should say, Emma's article is worth reading in full as she's presenting a carefully constructed argument. But here she is explaining the gist of it. Essentially, an assumption that I made in my article is that sooner or later, human beings are going to behave in a way that is consistent with their real moral intuitions. Now, I posited in my piece that if you think of sex purely as a recreational activity, which is a view of sex that we've inherited from the sexual revolution, If you think of sex that way, it becomes very hard to explain the unique wrongness of sexual assault, if I can put it like that. There are some actions that are wrong because they're violent. There are some actions that are wrong because they're unsafe or dangerous. But these explanations as to why sexual assault is wrong just do not seem to suffice. There is something about sexual violation. There's this sense that something precious has been imposed upon when sexual assault takes place. And it's this extra ingredient of the wrongness of sexual assault that I think is very difficult to explain if we don't think of sex itself as special. A lot of people, though, don't have a completely recreational view of sex. They just, it might not be what it once was, but they don't see it as a completely kind of frivolous thing. It's sort of a meaningful thing for people. That's true, isn't it? Yes, I think that is true. When I talk about the recreational view of sex, I'm contrasting it with what I labelled in the piece as the significance view of sex. 
Now, the significance view of sex, I take to include the view that even if perhaps you don't have to reserve sex for marriage, sex should still be something that is romantically significant. Now, of course, then we could have an analysis of what that means. What does it mean for sex to be romantically significant? But I think the intuition that sex is significant, it does capture a wide range of people. You might argue that there's a spectrum of views about sex that people uh, perhaps throughout their lives may flip-flop between a, a recreational extreme and a significance extreme. So it's not cut and dry. Both Emma Wood and John Stackhouse believe that to have any hope of navigating issues of consent, we need a substantial story or understanding of the world with a robust vision of the human person. As somebody who's taught world religions off and on for 30 years, I would say that not all religions do agree on the understanding of the human person. Not all religions have the same view of the goodness of the human body. Some religions see it as a kind of trap to be escaped or a kind of prison uh, from which we need to be emancipated, as a kind of temporary shell from which we need to rise up to spiritual heights. But uh, some of the religions, uh, particularly uh, in the Jewish and Christian and Muslim traditions, and some others as well, uh, would say that the body is a gift of God, that it's essential to our humanity and needs to be respected as a part of our innate personhood. It's not simply a tool. It's not simply a kind of recreational vehicle that we can drive anywhere we like and do anything we want with it, uh, like a motorcycle or a boat. Um, but it's really who we are, and to mistreat our bodies and to violate them, but even to just treat them as trivial, is to fundamentally misunderstand the goodness of the body that we've been given. And so I think lots of people who aren't particularly religious can join us in that, because I think this is a very widespread human intuition that my body matters and to violate my body and to coerce my body or to, to even touch my body when I don't want you to. This is a pretty wide uh, intuition that religious people can join in on and say, yes, um, we agree and we want us to treat each other seriously and respectfully uh, from a very early age forward, I mean, from uh, the time we're, we're delivered. And, and it seems to me too, Simon, that we have to say that Consent, then, is fundamental, um, but it's, it's way short of being enough. We really need an affirmative story that says, let's be honest with each other. Let's be gracious and delicate with each other. Uh, let's be modest when we want to be modest, and let's be sexy when we want to be sexy. The idea here is that it's all good so long as everybody's enjoying it. But if not everybody's enjoying it, then somebody's being selfish and somebody's being violent. And that's simply wrong. And to trivialize the body as if it's something of little account or something merely for physical or sexual pleasure um, is to misunderstand the nature of the body and to badly misuse it. And to see someone else's body as simply a commodity that I should be able to enjoy with or without that person's consent is deeply selfish. I mean, it's deeply wicked because it's, it's a kind of theft. It's a kind of abuse that goes way beyond indelicacy or anything else. It really is taking what is not yours. It's deeply arrogant. And so we should be quite fierce about that. What we do with our bodies is sometimes 
trivial and fairly unimportant. But when we get into the zone of relating to other people and touching other people, it's always important. Touch is never trivial. And sex is really never trivial. And part of what it means to be an intelligent and thoughtful and careful human being is to learn what's the right way for me to relate to people I care for and what are the ways in which I'm entitled to relate to other people and what are the ways in which I jolly well have to keep my hands to myself. As you can probably tell, John Stackhouse is operating with the significance view of sex. That view is one that fits a religious picture of the world, even if it's not limited to it. Here's Emma Wood again. We have two very different visions of the human person. One vision comes from a combination of our Christian heritage and uh, natural law-style thinking, and a later vision of the human person comes from uh, what I would describe as Western liberalism, which in the end really has it that we are desire-maximising machines. The good life, according to Western liberalism, is to live without constraint, freedom for freedom's sake, this goalless freedom that has no particular vision of what we are to be free for. When you view a human person as a desire-maximising machine who is to be free but for whom there is no purpose, no higher purpose that this freedom is to be used for, you inevitably are going to come up with the recreational view of sex being dominant and you are going to end up with what I would call a selfish chaos that results from this. When you live in a universe where you see yourself as an image bearer of God, someone who is made in God's image and who has a purpose, then you're going to start to see every aspect of your life, including your sexual life, as something that is written with purpose for which the choices you make have a shape and have a goal and have a higher calling. Let's go back to Tim Bowden. He's the head of Trinity Grammar School, which is a school that has Christian foundations, which makes this even more complicated. Now, Tim would be the first to say that the school doesn't perfectly live out these Christian convictions, but he does believe that those convictions have the potential for great good. I think that the Christian faith, properly understood, should mitigate against objectification and it should mitigate against using someone else as a means to my end. Um, So I think, yeah, the Christian faith lived authentically would take us away from the kinds of behaviours that are seen here. The challenge, of course, is that in a school like mine, for many of the families who are with us, the Christian faith is not part of their own personal convictions or worldview or value set. And so in that context, we commend the Christian faith and the virtues that run alongside it. We attempt to espouse our fundamental conviction that not only is the faith true, but that it works, and that young men who are decent and trustworthy and respectful will live a good life and they will make the world a better place. And we hope that becomes a compelling vision that other people will buy into. But yeah, it's certainly not the case that just because you go to an Anglican school, you're not gonna do that kind of stuff. We've seen in these testimonies that boys at schools like ours do those things. Tim is aware of the scale of the challenge before him, how to turn boys into men. For him, it's a question of character. We're a school which is unabashed about saying that whilst the boys will achieve and do and have all sorts of experiences along the way, the key thing we're after is the formation of good men. 
Uh, and I think about those good men really in three categories. That is men who are trustworthy, men who are decent and men who are respectful. And we're working really hard to try and shape boys to become men who are like that. The task of shaping people is a complex task. Some tasks are simple. You bake a cake, you follow the recipe, it's all good. Some tasks are complicated. Uh, that is sending a man to the moon. It's really hard to work how to do it once. But once you've done it once, in theory, you keep on doing the same thing, you'll get the same result. And some things are complex where the multitude of factors that come into play, the number of inputs, the number of variables means that even if you've done it once, you've got no guarantee of doing it well the next time. And I think raising a person, raising a human being, raising, in our case, a boy to become a man, that's a complex task. You've been listening to Life and Faith from CPX with me, Simon Smart and Justine Toe. Thanks so much for being with us. If this episode has been a difficult listen for you, please do talk to someone about it. Linda Dunstan, the Domestic Violence and Family Advisor at Anglicare, recommended 1-800-RESPECT, the DV hotline in your local state, Men's Referral Service or Lifeline. We'll post links in the show notes. Next week. We forget in science that what we call the scientific method is really only the method for a tiny bit of science, which is testing out and checking our hypotheses and our scientific ideas when we've got them. The really crucial step in science is to get good ideas going in the first place. There really is no method for having great, innovative, scientific, imaginative, creative ideas.